Welcome back to another Ag Watchers. We've got Kate Burke on. I'm excited to actually have this conversation because Kate is a big advocate of profitability and she's an offer. So she adds to our growing list of offers who have been on the podcast. I think we're up to five, six, seven. Yeah, it's a few. I'm just trying, I'm just trying to do it in my head how many we've had. But there's Michael been a few. Trant, Gabby Chan, mm. Chick Olson, Jonathan Kingsman. Mm-hmm. Kate Burke. Kate Burke, six. Uh, there's been another one. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, we're off on a tangent already. Already. Kate, tell us who you are for, for those who don't know. So I'm um, Kate Burke, as you rightly said. So we got that first bit right, or, uh, you know, Catherine Mary Bridget McCormick, uh, who married a Burke. Um, no guessing my religion of birth. Um, I grew up on a farm at Elmore, so Elmore Fieldays country. Oh, yeah. And our family's been in that region for a long time, since the 18-somethings. Um, so both, side, yeah, both sides of dad family being original pioneers of the area. Uh, youngest of six and being female, uh, family farm wasn't a... Option for me, went off to uni to do ag science. I uh, was always a bit of a nerd and um, started my career in Horsham at the Department of Agriculture, actually, in, oh, yeah. in grain quality. And um, 30 years later, here I am running Think Agri, a little consultancy, and uh, decided to write a book because I was sick of people thinking they knew what made money and yet um, the real cause of making money in farming was getting uh, uh, slipping under the carpet. Well, we'll get on to that in a bit, but we have to start off properly <laughs> with a song, Kate. Right, <laughs> sing away. Oh, oh. Or, we, or we can just go into the sixth sense. It's up to you. Uh, I think... My singing's best at 4 a.m. So, um, right, so, we, so we've got to talk reschedule. for another... Reschedule. Yeah, we'll reschedule. Yeah, yeah, see, but we could see, do a bit of tomorrow. poetry, you know, like um, <laughs> right. I've him a letter which I had, for want of better knowledge, sent to where I met him down the Lachlan years ago. He was shearing when I knew him. <laughs> so I sent a letter to him just on spec, addressed as follows, Clancy of the Overflow. Oh, the Overflow. There you go. There yeah. you go. There there you go. go. I, feel, I, feel, I feel we're getting more and more cultured in this podcast. Yeah, well, and James Stacey was saying just a little bit while ago that we were going too long on the podcast, but I figure if we just keep going with this one till 4 a.m., yeah. and then we'll start singing. We'll be fine. <laughs> just crack open the scotch and we'll be fine. So, Sixth Sense, you know the drill. Everyone yeah. knows the drill. Matt, you go first. You probably know, probably know what we're going to say. So. Well, she might know something. Successful farming, it's a really good question. I wasn't expecting that one first. Up. Expects, um, she was expecting haggis or black pudding as the, the soft yeah, opener. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a choice. Choice. There you go. That's a good one. Well considered answer. Haggis. <laughs> no. Nah. Crocs. The footwear. No. Profitability on farm. 
enabler. <laughs> uh, what about um, sustainability? Essential. Climate change. Real. There we go. That's six. It is. We, we kept count. Uh, I wish you'd said, um, if you'd said awful, I would have said you bet. Black what? pudding. Well, yeah. yeah. I, I switched. I bet you'd be lamb's fry. Yeah. But you'd, yeah, you'd yeah. Be, lamb's be, fry and deviled kidneys, brains. Yeah, sheep brain are beautiful. There's not many in the old, so I'm old enough, Kate, to remember you could go and get a counter meal at a pub and always one of the staples was uh, lamb's fry. Yeah, I've lamb's told fry you, and bacon, I told right? you, Matt. What? Flanagan's or the Border Hotel in Bacchus Marsh does lamb's fry. Yeah, there is a pub in Bacchus North. It also does the best Guinness pie this side of this side of Baker's Hill in Western Australia. There is a pub in Ballarat that does sheep's brain still up north there. The one up north, I can't remember the name of it now. Not really? the Northern Star. Yeah, but there's not many around. But remember, you could go into any pub in the old days, back in the olden days, and you could always on the a staple on the counter meal was uh, lamb's fry and bacon, absolute steak. And whereas now you can you hardly see it. Well, it's this is making for a really riveting conversation <laughs> on profitability on farm. <laughs> Well, it could that, be. It's, you know, about, about it is, frugal. Yeah. it's about using yeah. all parts of the animal and being frugal and not wasteful. It's about sustainability. That's, that's how right. we get. That's how we get to carbon neutral uh, livestock agriculture by 2030. Is by using every bit of the beast. Exactly. Well, we go back. We'll go back to the. So, Kate, you said you took a bit what? of time at the start there, thinking about that initial successful farming one. And, and the reason I asked you that, that is because I. I, I have a fair guess you've been on many, many, many farms over the years. You said 30 years involved in ag. What So you would have seen, I would say, what, what does make for a successful farmer and what doesn't. Are there any, would there be any, if you had to say, you know, three or four key characteristics of a successful farmer, what, what is it that makes a, a farmer successful? Yeah, and, and that's why I, I deliberated at the beginning because um, I didn't want to want my immediate word to come across as as judgmental or you know patronizing um and it is complex but i've been always been fascinated about what does make a successful farmer because one thing about farming is it is a bit visible you know and when you're working on the silo as a kid um or as a uni student and you you actually see who brings in the most grain and who, um, whose grain's got a clean sample and and um, who starts harvest first and who finishes early. And you see all these traits over three or four years when I was working at the silos. And then in my professional career, it's going to be a long answer, in my yeah. professional career, um, same sort of thing. You just see guys that appear to be lucky or families that appear to be lucky and and they just and they're lucky and lucky really regularly yeah yeah exactly and and i always look at when answering questions like this it's not what success is basically the serious someone smart said this and i can't remember who to attribute it to just put it towards me i'm happy to take yeah so andrew 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 Whitelaw, this really, you know, amazing, brainy, young Scott I'm, gl- I'm glad we got Kate on. I'm, I'm really enjoying this podcast. Who happens it's my, to be... This is my favourite one so far. Australia. Yeah, I'm very good at blowing smoke. Um, I was 
I had four older brothers, so I learned, and, and an older sister, so I learned how to um, give compliments really early as a matter of survival. Um, so anyway, this quote was that success is the serial avoidance of failure. <laughs> and, yeah. and when you actually think about it, I always think about, well, who are the people who have had to sell their farms for un, you know, unfortunate circumstances? And often they're, they're, they're just unable to, um, you know, get things done on time and that has implications or often they're the ones that have tried, you know, followed the trends and jumped boots and all into a particular type of farming and overspent on machinery or whatnot or tried to play the price game too much and, you know, basically don't have a never had a sound agronomic rotation and then the risk just became you know put put the money on the um on on the black instead of the red in the wrong year they're the sorts of things that that have I've seen send people broke and I guess what makes the successful farmers is the ability to take control of their own business and continually make good choices under pressure. And that's actually a quote from the choice under pressure is a quote from Han Van Rees uh, after watching uh, clients in, in the, in the Mallee, in that Southern Mallee, which is really tough country during mm. drought years. And you know, most of those farms are still standing and on another generation when we went through that tough 10 years and it was that ability to make good choices under pressure and and the other so so back to i guess you know three or four traits ultimately it's in a nutshell it's been good with crops in terms of you know a, a crop and dominant farm or a mixed livestock farm it's been technically good at what you do so good at growing stuff Financially astute, good with money, and being good with people, including yourself. And that allows you to be, be able to make good choices under pressure, be able to get have relationships that help you get things done. And ultimately, and this has come out in actual research, qualitative research associated with quantitative research when they've done interviews as well to complement benchmarking, but there's this real thread of, of taking responsibility, responsibility and accountability, and, and that's what mm. leads to success. So that's why I say success is a choice. Yeah, so so like in terms of, of that, yeah, like I agree 100%, you've got to take responsibility. And if you take responsibility for your actions and, and what you're actually doing as a business, then ultimately you become more invested in that business. You can't just expect the industry to do it for you or the market to do it for you or mm. the rain to do it for you, I guess. Mm. How, like, and you've, you've spent a lot of time dealing with a lot of farmers around the place, yeah? As yeah. you've identified those, those key criterion, yeah? How often do you think the farmers are truly focused enough on the business side of a farm? Because I've got, I've got contacts who I consider them to be farmers. And I've got contacts who I consider to be businessmen who are, or business people, sorry, 
in the business of farming. And I see them as two quite distinct. Like this side here with the, the, the farmer, uh, businessmen or women in the farm business are more focused on the spreadsheets, the uh, financial management, and the other side is really focused on production. Yep. Grow more, uh, wean more, whatever it may be. Is a middle ground, I guess. You've got to find. Yeah, I, I think there is. Um, absolutely. So the, I think there's a lot of room for production-focused farmers to be more conscious of of their um, their numbers. I was thinking about this today. You know, I was listening to your podcast the other day with Malcolm Bartholomew and oh, Malcolm, yeah, yeah, and talking about price discovery. And I thought, imagine if we got a text every morning that said, "You've spent this much um, so far this season." Do, do you know what? Do you know what happened if you got a text that said, "This is how much you spent this season"? I'd unsubscribe to the. It service. would be. <laughs> it would be three hundred and sixty-five unread SMSs. <laughs> <laughs> The other one, the other text would say, "This is what your your crops are worth, and and this is what your potential profit is." I, I give I give an example because we were talking about the seller on, and it's a bit of a tangent. Yeah, we we send out an email a couple of times a week. Yeah, and and we put a, a subject line: markets up, markets down. Yeah. Yeah. When we put out a subject line that says the markets up, everyone opens it. When we say the market's down, no one opens. <laughs> oh, spot on. Like but, 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 but you need to know both. You need to know like, yeah, what's yeah, happening yeah. down and up. Yeah, and, and that's one of the – my turn to go on a tangent now. One that's what the, thing... the whole podcast is, so don't worry. Ah, good. That's my favourite sort of uh, conversation. One of the things that occurred to me – when I was writing the book and, and even before that is, is the key to, I guess, being able to make good decisions under pressure is actually being able to uh, examine information you don't like. Mm. So it's about, and the reason you don't want to examine information you don't like is because ultimately there's a fear. Absolutely. And you know, I, I, like, I never want to watch the Queen of the South football scores anymore. Exactly, exactly. And and you would see you would you guys would see this. Um, you know, there was a quite a large frost event last year. Yep. And it caught a lot of people by surprise. Even though in this day and age, it's really easy to work out how many degrees and how long you've been under under a, a certain temperature. And and there's other tools out there like imagery that you can have a look at the crop to see if anything looks a bit odd and go and look in those patches. But ultimately there's a fear there. And, and one of the things I say is um, thinking about bad stuff that may, or may happen or may not happen doesn't actually mean that it's going to happen. And moving from fear to acceptance bit like with climate change um, on a broader scale or just simply, um, you know, day-to-day stuff is critical for making really good decisions. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, 
one of my former clients when I was doing agronomy. He's a very, very funny man. And uh, it was one of those years when all the grass weeds were coming up at the same time as the, the crops. And so there was a lot of volunteer cereals coming up in favour bank crops and, and just they were just weedy yeah. in general earlier than normal. And um, so two neighbours are talking to each other at golf and one says, oh, Kate says I've got to put out a, I'm going to have to do two grass sprays this year and I've got to go and um, spray already. Oh. And the other bloke says, oh, I just didn't take it to the grassy bits of my paddock. <laughs> <laughs> But because I knew him so well, I gave him the recommendation anyway. Yeah. <laughs> the, the that stuff made. goes on all the time. It so it's, the it's kind of like the opposite of like confirmation bias, then, isn't it? It's like a falsification bias or, yeah. or yeah. something. Yeah. Well, well, you said it, you said about the making that decision under pressure, that, that being able to make a, a, a good decision or a correct decision under pressure. How much of that also comes back to preparedness and and kind of having say a good team around you whether it's an agronomist or or another kind of expert or you know, even if you're in the livestock game someone that's there helping you with your uh, with your kind of husbandry of the livestock um what you know how, how much of it is actually because I, I think of it back to when you're in a crisis like i've done cfa stuff and and i know you know some of the things that happen in the military the reason why they can make a decision that's usually the right decision when you're under that amount of pressure is because you've just, you've prepared for it, you're trained, you know, you've got a good team around you and that's what makes sometimes a difference. So you're not floundering. Is that, is that aspect as well part of it? Oh, oh, I think so. I think there's a couple of aspects in there. One is um, the longer you do something, the more scenarios you've come across before. So you know how to react and what needs to be done. Um, and, and when you've got plans and, and have discussed some of the scenarios months before, again, you can just get into action. And, you know, and now we, when we have a dry year now, you know, guys are going to the bank in June and talking about their positions if, they're, if um, it looks like it might be an El Nino or an IOD positive year. Mm. You know, they're, in, they're, they're getting organised early. So that certainly does happen the other aspect of that, I think, is, yeah, it, it can be, for some people, it's just intuitive and they just innately manage those situations, um, you know, and you would see in your CFA example that some people are calmer in a crisis and just quickly go into problem-solving mode and, and others less so. Does that mean it can't be taught if it's more intuitive or are you still saying it can be a skill that can be learned? Oh, it, it absolutely is a skill that can be taught. It, it just comes easier to some, some than people. others. It's like, you know, in, in sport, you get someone, they pick up a golf club for the first time ever and they've got this magnificent swing. And it's, because, others, it's because they're Scottish. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, they've got the right other, DNA. Yeah, and others whose DNA has been diluted over generations, you know, have to go and have lessons and all those sorts of things. Um, so you can you can teach this stuff. It's just um, innate more in, in in some than others. And and I think it it really does depend on your overall state of mind and, and your health. Um, hmm. It is psychological, isn't it? Because you, you're saying you can't or can you teach you know, calmness under pressure, but it's repetition, yeah? 
Mm. Like if you if you're doing the same thing every time, yeah, it becomes you become numb to it to an to an extent. Maybe not numbs, maybe not the right word. Well, you kind of go into autopilot. You got autopilot, and you do. I'll give you an example. Yeah, completely off the tangent. Yeah, when I'm playing ice hockey, yeah, I've been on the ice thousands of hours. Yeah, tens of thousands of hours. Yeah, every time I walk up to that ice, yeah, I look at it and say, "Geez, that looks slippy." in my head and I think what if I've forgotten how to skate and then I put my feet on the ice and it's muscle memory and that's exactly the same thing so so the same example as well and an actual proper agricultural example is I was talking to somebody the other day and they were saying oh this market's so crazy this market's so crazy it's never been like this before and I said oh what about back in 2007 and they said oh I've only been in the industry for seven years. Mm. I was like, oh, okay, that explains a lot. Because for us, if you've been around a similar type of environment, two crazy environments, at least you can put perspective around it. And you can say, oh, we've been like this before. It's going to cycle back down. It'll change. It'll come back around. So again, it's experience, testing, experience. In, ter- in terms of so financial literacy, yeah? How like how good if if you were to give the industry in general how good do you think farmers financial literacy is is it something that is is getting better or do you think it's still a thing that is considered to be it's a bit boring? Yeah, I think there's huge scope for improvement. And again, I I don't like generalising, but it is something I see in high-performing farms tend to have a stronger financial literacy um, than, than others. Um, part, partly, I think that's a result of, of historically how our businesses have been run. Mm-hmm. So our bookkeeping has been, the focus on our bookkeeping has been compliance, yeah. taxation, and and um, paying as little tax as, as possible. possible. And, and, and so accountants tend to focus on, on tax minimisation and, um, you know, it's until zero, zero, I think, and think those sort of programs have been great because they've actually allowed people to, to quickly look at profit and loss um, mm. But there's a huge... So it's kind of switched more to like management accountant. Yeah, in, but in I think there's still a huge gap there between accrual accounting and and tax accounting and, and an understanding of, you know, that it's actually okay to pay tax and it probably means that you... You, you, gotta get, you, you might get making, some decent roads. Yeah, skills. yeah. So there's a lot of mindset around that and, you know, a lot of really unnecessary expenditure comes from... Um, at this time of year. You know. Speaking of which, if you want to have a tax deductible sponsorship of ag watchers, send us ten thousand dollars before the end of June. Uh, Sorry, beat... that was the advertisement for the day. Yeah, you just beat me to it. I was about to say you can buy um, five copies of Kate's book. Yeah, or uh, Think Agri Real Insights, an absolute bargain, three sixty bucks annually plus GST. Pay the next five years in advance. Exactly. We can we can do anything. Um, I think back to 2009 and the um, 
there was an incentive scheme to buy machinery and it had to be done before the 1st of December. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in 2009 was the first, it looked like being the first decent year since, um, well, really? for a long 2004 time. 2004 or something, would it have been? Uh, two, four was terrible. Five wasn't too bad, but prices were low. Yeah. Three was okay, depending on where you were. 2001 wasn't too bad. 2000 wasn't too bad, but... So, so people were looking at these crops and they looked fantastic. But the weather forecast was saying we're in an El Nino, but it was still raining. And Chris Sanis uh, said to me, he said, what worries me is the heat. People don't realise about the impact of El Nino and heat. Mm. And, um, and sure enough, got to the last week of October and the first week of November and there was two weeks of like 40 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> It was probably our first real insight into, you know, this whole new climate regime we're in. And so we had lentil crops that were literally probably $3,000 a hectare gone and became $200 a hectare crops. Yeah. And people had gone out and bought SP sprayers and all this other stuff because they hadn't, hadn't really bought much machinery for the last few years. And... Um, and thought they were going to make some money, thought they needed to minimise tax, and so they spent it before they had it. And it really knocked a lot of people around. Um, so I know, again, sort of got off track about financial literacy. But, but, but is, that, is that also kind of an example of trying to be too clever? Try, yeah, but, try, trying to rock the car, the, oh, count the chickens before they've hatched. Yeah, all that stuff. But because the demand, you know, the, the, the industry signals to the accounting profession is that we want you to save us tax and we want you to be aware of all these schemes and everyone loves a bit of machinery. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if I had my way, I would get rid of any depreciation uh, incentive um, <laughs> schemes so I'm probably just Gosh, now made that's, that's, myself the most unpopular <laughs> agricultural advisor in Australia. That's a very bold statement. I'll quickly I'll, I'll change tack then so they don't pay any attention to what you just said. Um, <laughs> you may you may I'll talk to I'll talk about something. No, no, less, actually, I, no? actually, sorry, I've, I've got one that's more controversial. I was going to say I'm going I was going to go to something less controversial. Climate change. <laughs> no, we've got we've got something more controversial. I tell you what, the most controversial one is, and I. Uh, just if, if you want to get really unpopular in agriculture, just say one of two things. At a conference, say, hey, could I have a soy latte, please? <laughs> uh, or secondly, um, can we remove the diesel rebate? That's more controversial. There, there, there's the two controversials. If you want to make yourself really unpopular, those are the ones to do. Soy latte, yeah. at, a, soy latte at the UDV at dairy conference. Event, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. no, almond milk. Almond milk um, would be more yeah, that's worse. If you're lactose intolerant, you just should, if you're in that, that venue and lactose intolerant, just drink just drink. Do you know, what happens, you know what happens if you're lactose intolerant? <laughs> if you're lactose? Mm-hmm. You fall over. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. You've got no balance. Yeah, yeah. no balance. <laughs> yeah. We've been at a few of those industry events and lack balance at the end of the night, Andrew. But yeah. that's a whole other that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, Kate, uh, you um, so you, when we said climate change or climate, I think was the and you said real or was your answer. Um, I was just wondering because you, you, you spoke a bit about 
that that kind of you know, stuff you've noticed on from the farmer side and the characteristics of a farmer. But I'd suspect too, over the last thirty years, you've kind of seen you know front f- first of hand on farm some of the potential changes um, you know that have been that have been coming with this. I think you mentioned before as well that we're in this new era of, of the changed climate. Um, over those thirty years, are there any particular key things that stand out of what you've seen? Is my first part of the question. But the second part of the question is also, um, do you think the majority of farmers are on board with it being real or not? So there's there's two you can kind of think of. Yeah, okay. So um, the temperature's the, the amazing thing. Like the temperature has has shot up and, and that's what we're seeing, um, particularly that temperature related to El Nino or IOD positive years, so spring temperatures. Um, you know, I remember going back to my silo days, it was one shocking day and it was like 48 degrees and um, we shut the silos and went home and all lay on the floor. I think my brothers had been hay carting or something, so we all knocked off and were laying on the floor watching the cricket sort of exhausted. And then I never come across another 48 degree day until um, I guess 1997, which was an El Nino year. And so you expect those things, you know, once every 10 years. Well, now we're getting them, you know, we could get those sort of conditions for two, two or three years in a row. Mm. So that's a definite change. The other definite change has been the frequency or the volatility of rainfall. So all the things that guys like Mark Howden said when they first started talking about the impact of climate change, you know, they said it was going to get um, hotter. They said it would get um, more extreme. Um, so there'd be drier years in the north. There would be when the, the, the floods would be worse, they would be more extreme and there'd be more bushfires. And we've seen all of those things in this last decade. Mm. Um, so it's pretty confronting that it, it's actually happening. It, it's there. And so it yeah, just does my head in when people try and argue that it's not there. Um, so that's that. What was the other question? Well, the question was... <laughs> this is the thing, so, Matt. Matt, you need, yeah. to, you need to realise not to layer questions up and over <laughs> because everyone forgets the question. But then I forget the question myself, so I've got to get it out there. Um, the other, the other bit was now you obviously you're in touch with a lot of farmers. Broadly speaking, uh, uh, most of the farmers you engage with are they are they in agreement, or are they still kind of you know sitting on the fence, or are they still pretty strongly denying it's just oh, the same old know. cycle we've seen? Well, as as a broad, I'm not expecting you to name yeah. names, look, of course. Look, look, the majority are very aware that you know the seasons are more variable. Um, it's probably only um, you always get sort of strong-minded folk that um, might like blokes in big hats from up north um, that, that might still try and argue the, the, the cause, but particularly the younger generation are definitely um, concerned about it and want to talk about it, want to plan for it. Um, but going back to, I remember... The last time we had a a, um, a Labor government, they spent a lot of money in the in from sort of around once 
after Kevin 07, they spent quite a bit of money in those five years on climate variability task forces and, and, and there was a lot of really good research done and workshops done on sort of preparing for the future and having more awareness. And I was at one of these workshops, was hosted by Birchett Cropping Group, run by CSIRO people and federal department people. And they were talking about all this variability and the potential drop in rainfall. And it was a two-day workshop. And as I said before, I'm a bit of a nerd. So before I got back the next day, I went back and looked at all our rainfall records. And our rainfall had already dropped by that amount because the base was 1990. Um, And I came back the next day and said, I don't know what we're worrying about, guys. We're we're sorted. We're we're actually, we're making money with 30% um, less rain. We've adapted. You know, we're doing things like cutting hay in dry years, all this stuff. So farmers are adaptable just like, everybody's adaptable like humans are adaptable you know think about what we've done in the last three years um when the pandemic we're all sitting here on a zoom or um we never knew what zoom was two years ago yeah well actually i was ahead of the curve thanks to jeanette long who ran a virtual mentoring group in 2016 so she introduced me to zoom and i'd been using it to for farm business coaching to clients interstate. Nice. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. But you think about the beginning of the pandemic. Oh, this is really good for a podcast because it's visual. Yeah. But Describe, the... it, describe it, Matt. Uh, it looks like, is it some kind of a, I thought it was a bulldog clip for a second, Look, but a it's not that. bulldog clip with a, two L brackets. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a, so and a... what, it, what, it, what it is was my first attempt make a phone holder oh yeah innovation so this was me at the beginning of COVID so for the audience it's actually two elbows and and then a um a G a G-shaped um pieces of steel bolted together like a little Meccano setup with a bit of a a um, black hose from the garden split and then a cork inside that and your phone sits in in there. And then, of course, you know, then you go to Aldi <laughs> two years later and you can buy all sorts of crap for holding your phone and, and um, making videos and running podcasts and whatnot. So I suppose the point of the exercise is when you have to do something, people will. And then the solutions become more and more refined. So, so then if, so we're, if, we're, if we're adaptable, like you say we're adaptable as farmers, then yep. should we not worry as much about climate change because we're going to adapt anyway? C- can I give my view on climate change? You can. I, I've said this a few times, yeah? I'm, I don't know whether climate change is real or not. I'm not a scientist, but I'll trust the scientists. If they say it is, they will. And I do also think we will adapt the same. We've adapted to everything from everything over 10,000 years of human civilization. So we adapt, we get ready. But the other, one thing I would say is there's a lot of people who are very anti-climate change in agriculture, but we've got a new government that is going to be looking at that sort of thing. We've clearly got a large proportion of the population who believe in climate change. So there is going to be work in that space. So it's much better that the industry 
is what's the word, Matt? Uh, inside inside the tent pissing rather than mm. outside of the tent, because we want to make sure that any of those policies that Absolutely. this particular government yep. is realistic, is targeted, and is also workable. Because I know, I know if we don't have agriculture involved in those discussions, it might not be workable. It has to be realistic. Look, we, we are inside the tent already. You know, um, National Farmers Federation came out with a, a, a climate adaptation and climate change statement quite a few years ago now. You know, um, and and basically it was the government and the National Party were the last people to get on the bus and clearly some still aren't on the bus. Um, but we, in you know, in my work with, with clients and in my previous role as an agronomist with JSA Independent, we used to run, have annual um, information updates all year and we, we ran a climate change focus update in like 2008 or 2009 and talked about you know, David Drage on there who'd done a Nuffield fellowship on oh on David the, yeah he's good yeah you know we had um, Bill Malcolm just talking generally about oh, Bill. Um, business risk and and of course we, we talked about some of our own analysis and, and, and variability so this isn't new news for farming and yeah. and I, I wonder a bit whether the the noise about you know, the resistance to it, whether that's just the noisy minority these days, um, a bit like the anti-vaxxers, you know, the majority, I think what you're, like what you're saying, Andrew, are just getting on with it and, and um, you know, want governments to support sensible adaptations. It's just, it's just got to be sense, common sense approach to everything, I think. Yeah, that, that's then, what I'm. That's what I'm well known for is common sense. Me too. Me too. Matt might disagree with that by the look on his face, but <laughs> um, they do say that common sense is not so common. I'm fairly sure, Kate, that you've got a lot of common sense. You're smiling too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, it is an interesting sort of Ask period. My husband. <laughs> but but there's an interesting sort of period that we're in just now. That then uh, like completely off topic, yeah. I sort of we all watched the election on Saturday night. Uh, I got it wrong before. In between watching St Kilda and beat Adelaide, but yes, I did get it wrong. I did say I did say that I thought that the Nationals, the Liberal Nationals, could potentially win. Uh, my logic was wrong, so that's the first time I've been wrong on on elections since two thousand and eight, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're allowed to get have an error every now and then. Every now and then, it's, yeah. it's just to keep myself human. Mm-hmm. Just keep myself, you know, you know, modest. You do look rather biblical there with that beard, you know. Anyway, um, <laughs> I was going to say something that was profound and biblical. Profound and biblical. Uh, but when uh, when we look at, I, I looked on Twitter, yeah, I looked on Twitter on Sunday and Monday, <laughs> and I was actually quite surprised we were still here because I kind of thought the sky had fallen in. Yeah. It, it was the end times. The end times yeah, were here. I, I thought that was a bit interesting too. And I actually, I, 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 like I've not been here long enough to see successive governments over over lots of periods of time. I'm just a, I'm just a, a first gen blow Australian. In. A blow in. A backpacker, uh, that's, a backpacker that's stayed, stayed a bit too long. 
G'day, mate. Puna shrimp on a barbie. Um, but when we, anyway. I'm over on a boat. But there's not that many things that they can change. I, I, I've, well, hopefully I'm wrong. They, they're going to get their advice from the industry. I mean, governments are generally not too bad. They just do what they do. And I think they'll ignore. I, I, I've got a feeling they'll so Can I have a rant now? Oh, go on. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's what we're here for. You know, this is just this is just this is just my our soapboxes. Well, actually, Matt, you can actually go. It'd just be Kate and Andrew's soapbox. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go and make a cup of coffee and come yeah. back in half. Uh, Matt, six, Matt six, do six, you six. want to have a go on your soapbox before I jump on mine? No, you go, Kate. You go. I'll I'll, I'll be the I'll, I'll smile and nod. You you think about something to complain about, Matt? One of my one of my absolute frustrations is is simple simple thinking. And and um, ah, you're you're in you're in the wrong company here. <laughs> and dual thinking, and so you know, red tractors versus green tractors. Who gives a monkeys? Exactly, it's not going to make you any more money whether they're red or they're green. Um, and unfort and the reality is Saint the main- Ken- Saint Kilda versus exactly. I don't know. I don't know here. Which is why I actually have I have at some stages in my life barracked for Carlton. Um, there you go. So I'm one of those weird people that can, you know, jump Switch. ship. Well, th- again, that was self-preservation. Well, as, as you said earlier on, it's about adapting. Exactly. And so when you've got, you decide you're barracked for Carlton and then your three brothers threaten to bash you up if you don't, then, of course, you're going to barrack for St Kilda. But then when your father is financing your life and he barracks for Carlton and you're a 13-year-old opportunist, of course you're going to barrack for Carlton and get a footy jumper out of it. So, yeah. you know, and then jump back to St Kilda later on in life. That's why Matt supports Rangers because he got a free <laughs> Rangers top. Yeah. And yeah, no, it's uh, I would have preferred not the white one because the white one, when I'm cleaning the toilet with it, it, it kind of, you can see the stains more. If it was the blue one, it would have been a bit more disguised. So anyway, as we interrupted yeah, you there, so, Kate. So back to back to simple thinking, and you know, and, but footy teams is okay because it's just it, it's a sport. It's footy. It's entertainment. You can back for who you like. Politics isn't actually a sport. Tractor brands aren't actually a sport, and and some people treat politics as a sport, but it's well documented and well referenced and people that actually know something about politics like Gabrielle Chan would tell you that that you know that there's not a hell of a lot of difference in this day and age between the coalition and the ALP or between liberal and the ALP so the reaction that we saw on twitter about everything going to hell in a handbasket is actually um yeah, it's just that instinctive tribal thinking mm. with no actual thought process or evidence behind it. And that's understandable because that's the way you're brought up and, you know, it's drummed into you that you've got to vote for the country party or you've got to vote for the Liberal Party. Just like if you grew up in a in a family who, um, um, you know, worked, for, for other people and, and really needed the union, the union to go into bat for them that you would be preached to that side. Yeah. So, so, so I understand that bit, 
But if you actually think about the policies that are important at the moment, um, like all, all the policies that could could have done harm, um, like you know, getting on with being adaptable to climate change or becoming a world laggard with climate change, um, things like protecting protecting um, agricultural soils from from fracking or all those sorts of things. Um, you know, there's nothing, no evidence to suggest that life's going to go into hell in a handbasket. It's just this fear. Again, I'll go back to that word fear. You say the word greens and everyone everyone um, goes into absolute um, raptures of, of frenzy because they associate people protecting the environment with being anti-agriculture. And even the greens have softened. Mm. Um, They're not as extreme as they used to be. No, not at all. And and it would be really interesting. One thing I'm interested in is having discussions with with um, people involved in the greens agriculture policy, um, so that they understand, you know, the the evidence base around profitability and the evidence base around sustainable agriculture. Because going back 15 years ago, that they, they were very pro. Um, I guess organic and biodynamic yeah. farming, and perhaps not. Um, we, we've seen how that's gone in Sri Lanka. Yeah, and they—they <laughs> they probably weren't. You know, they were basically the the guy who was the chair of sort of biodynamic Australia or whatever they were called was there was also the Greens um, policy advisor. So, so I think, but, but it's come quite, a long like, way. But, but I'm not an agronomist, chair. Yeah? Uh, clearly, but a lot of the technology we have now is a lot greener than it used to be not on purpose to be green but it just happens to be that we're using less chemicals we're more targeted i guess no till would be better for the environment oh absolutely yeah exactly so so, so, so there's a lot and a lot of people you know city folk non-agricultural people wouldn't necessarily be aware that no till is good for the environment But but it's about bringing them into the tent, so to speak. Yeah, and that's something I'm really passionate about is explaining, you know, why we need glyphosate, for example. If we take glyphosate, then the Mallee shifts to Melbourne again because the soil will blow away. Um, You know, why it's important that we look after our sheep in terms of controlling flies um, and, and just make sure the conversations are not sophisticated is not the right word um inclusive inclusive but also i know all the buzzwords these days in informed i guess and, and going back to the you know my rant on on simplistic sort of reactions on on twitter to to the result that's not an informed um position and mm-hmm. and just like we'll have people on twitter who will react to anything to do with agriculture about us destroying the earth you know so these there's those extreme views yet in the middle there's a solution and you know it's 2006 i wrote a paper called bioresponsible farming farming that's friendly on the environment and and on on the wallet 
because I was frustrated that simplistic solutions were being put forward to farmers who were really vulnerable at the time. And, and it was in that period, yeah, that 2007 period when pr- fertiliser prices were really yep. high, very similar circumstances to now, except for the fact that, you know, we were on our in, knees. In a dry period. With, in, a, in a really dry dry period. And, you know, so many people kept ringing me up asking me about guano as a fertiliser. Guano? And guano is batshit. Yeah. Batshit. Batshit. That must be. Speaking so of which, you can also like buy bat, snake. Batshit crazy idea. Sounds like you're about to talk about. No, I was about to, I was about to say uh, we've also got snake urea available from from my shed. So, ah, uh, of course, of course. Um, so, so they were coming. So they were so, coming with batshit. Yes. Yep. And 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 it was getting. And if you ever you look at at the moment, there's no ads. I don't think in the Weekly Times for guano but whenever there's a dry period or or there may have been when phosphorus fertilizer went up there'll always be ads for this product the trouble is it probably works in cans or somewhere like that it's not in a form the phosphorus isn't in a form that's available okay so stick it out in a dry land paddock it it actually does nothing so but is it a kind of I was going to say bat snake oil, but is that kind of bat oil that we get these sort of, because I, I remember the last drought, 1819, yeah? Yeah. There seemed to be a lot of things coming out that I looked at, and I'm not, again, I'm not an agronomist, but things like control the weather, bring the rain to your farm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This, oh, it, 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 it's is just it, is it people is, is when they're really. Susceptible. Like, yeah, I really, I really hate that sort of stuff. It mm. does my head in. And um, but people, but people, people cling on to it. People, yep, sort of grab and gravitate to the what is hopefully a solution. Yeah, you know, and, and, and you and you kind of you sometimes if you, if you're in that sort of situation, I guess you lose your kind of objectivity. In a normal year, they might say, "Well, of course you can't bring the rain." Yeah, so. and that happened in the. In the mid 2000s, the same thing in those drought years, there was a rainmaker running around and was actually supported by a federal, the member for Melly at the time. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, vulnerable people were, were putting up money for this stuff. You know, it's just so I, go, I guess it goes back to that point I made about responsibility before. Like, we all have a responsibility to work out whether we're being sold a pup or not. So, so we're probably coming to the end, yeah? And that's a good tangent. How should farmers take responsibility for it? What should they do to make sure? And without giving away all of the uh, the ending of your book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can buy it off, off, off of Kate from her website if you want all the answers. But what would you, how, how, how do you start that sort of thing? What do you have to be responsible for? I guess. Well, it's give, right. give us some tips. Okay, so the first thing is you're responsible for, for your bank balance and your commitments, not your neighbour. So worry less about what other people think. Mm-hmm. Worry less about what your neighbours are saying about you because they're probably not saying anything. Yep. Or if they are, it doesn't matter anyway. And make good decisions that are good for you and your family. 
And every farm is different. Every farm has a different financial base. So what might work on one farm may not be the answer for you. Yeah. So that's probably my biggest thing about taking responsibility is that ultimately it's your place, your decision. You can't defer all, all the responsibility to your brokers, analysts, advisors. They can give you advice. And ultimately, at the end of the day, though, you need to make the decision. 100%. And own the decision. And, and I think I, we've got an issue arising at the moment in, in, in sort of certain areas around wheat swaps, yeah? Yeah. Where there's been a real, uh, definitely use an advisor, whatever you want to do, yeah? But you should not use an advisor if you don't understand the product. You still have to take your own personal responsibility and be and have informed consent. You can't sign up for something and say, oh, it's the advisor told me to do it. Well, no, you have yeah. to understand it. 2007 um, all over again. Oh, exactly. And that's and that's what we're sort of seeing. But you, but it's a sort of, I, I, I think outsourcing things is appropriate at a number of periods, yeah? But not wholly. You've still got to have, like outsourcing your accounts is fine, yeah? yeah. But you still have to have a basic knowledge of operating a business. Well, the way I look at swaps, and, and I really enjoyed um, one of your newsletters, Andrew, that just put the volatility in perspective. Mm, in terms crazy. Of, you know, 74, 07, and, and now, like, and it, it's madness. So if you think about you've never, you've never surfed before and you're at, at, the, at the beach and there's a massive swell you're not going to go and get some guy um, surfing coach to take you out into that massive swell. Or I, can't sw- I can't swim anyway. So. Yeah, or, well, Matt and I can. But I suppose my point is you don't learn a new skill and then go out and test it out in the most wildest, volatile no. conditions. It's a, bit guess- tricky. it's a bit tricky with Andrew because he goes swimming with his wallet it drags him down, Kate. Drags me down. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, it's, um, actually, it's actually not too bad because I just what I do is I tie all the moths onto the wallet and it keeps me up. So. <laughs> Before you move on, though, Kate, you made the point about with farmers worrying about what other people, like their neighbours and people in the district, think about what they're doing. But how much of that also happens that they're also looking to see what everyone else is doing as well, and then kind of comparing themselves, or you know, is, is there oh, a lot I of that all the time? And it's. It's, you know, and it's great. Like I say that being aware of what's going on around you teaches you about possibility, but really knowing your own business is what teaches you about probability and what's, what can happen. And, and the reason I'm really passionate about this is in 2006, seven when we were um, trying to help guys make some good decisions about what to do with their crops, um, and there was an opportunity to supply the hay market in, in the northern irrigation area, like so the dairy farm market. Yeah. And and um, you know, I stood in paddocks, did all the sums, they had the contacts to help people make the decision. And it was, you know, a really good financial decision to cut those crops for hay. And then well-intentioned neighbours jumping the fence and talking guys out of it and costing them. Yeah. No, that is not on. 
and you know, guys calling into blokes after church on a Sunday and saying, look, you know, I, I really don't think you should cut that paddock. Yeah, you shouldn't do that. No, and, and I think, but, but it's your decision. And, and I guess I just wonder in agriculture how everyone looks across the fence. We of look at, we, we look at, we, we look at our competitors and yeah. you're stupid if you don't, I guess. But again, you're perfectly right. You don't know what they're doing to get to that decision. Like, like so the hay cutting one, there's all sorts of different variables in there that farmer Jimmy next door might not have. Exactly. So it's a, again, it comes back to this thing, uh, that informed consent, that informed knowledge about your own operation. Yep. Not what Jimmy next door. And and peer pressure. Peer pressure is probably is a big issue. Yeah, and peer pressure is okay when you're, you know, 17, 18 or whatever. But when you're or, running a or business. When, or when Matt and I go out for a drink. Yeah. Oh, just I'm, another. Just another. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I may be a bit guilty of that too. I'm not always sensible. Um what I was going to say that was if you think about fiduciary responsibility, you know, when you do a director's course, you're taught that you're when you're spending someone else's money, you've got to be put twice as much effort into that mm. rather than if it was your own money. When you're a farmer making the operational decisions, you're making decisions on behalf of your other people in your family. Mm-hmm. Um, on behalf of your kids, on behalf of if you're in a partnership, say, with siblings, on behalf of their families, it's not good enough to make those decisions based on peer pressure. You know, that's an excuse that, like, um, one of my mates when I was four years old smashed all the plates in, in my cubby and said, Teddy made me do it. And hello, Simon, if you're listening, Simon Nile from... Uh, <laughs> Uh, one of the ad companies, its name, forget me at the moment. But, you know, that's okay then. But you can't say Teddy made me do it or Joe Blow made me do it now with the, the dollars that are on. So it's, um, it's, I guess, so you know, I'll, I'll summarise growing it. up, being a grown-up. I guess I'll summarise it in my view, yeah, and, and what I've learnt tonight, because every day is a school day. Take responsibility for your own actions and your own business, understand your own business inside and out, and then make loads of money and bring the rain, pay for somebody to bring the rain. Yeah, and get stuff done. Yeah. Get stuff done. Well, Throw stuff to make stuff. No, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I want to get you on as a regular. I think we might get rid of Matt, actually. <laughs> just be the two of us. And, uh, yeah, Matt's okay. been a bit quiet tonight. I'm a bit disappointed with that, Matt. You know, I was waiting for your, you know, spicy interjections. And well, he's, he's been on. Whoops. He's been on a honeymoon, a second honeymoon. Oh, of course, he's glowing. <laughs> he's glowing. He's uh, he's been on a promise. Uh, I, I just have to try and find the time to uh, get a word in when Andrew's not. You know, when Andrew takes a breath or takes a swig of his uh, craft beer that he's drinking at the moment. Um, I, I actually don't know if it is a craft beer because all of these beers are now so common that they're actually the regular beer. Yeah, so what are we going to do about that, Andrew? Because, yeah, I don't like 
doing stuff that everyone else does. So if everyone's drinking carafe beer, does that mean we go back to drinking Melbourne bitter or something? Melbourne, oh. Melbourne bitter get, and Foster's. Can you even get Melbourne? Is Melbourne bitter still available? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Melbourne system. bitter's trendy now. It's hipster beer. Is it? Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, you've got you've got the beard, Andrew. Oh so no, not drinking bush chooks. It's good. It's good because it doesn't well, matter. Actually, it doesn't matter I'm... if it's roasting hot or it's in the fridge. It tastes exactly the same. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> and it's it's one of those beers that is. It doesn't matter. Thank you for your sponsorship, Amy. <laughs> but uh, no, it's really enjoyable. I, I like I. I've always had a view that you know farming is really focused on on one side, yeah production 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 so i guess there's a whole side tag you got to produce something you got to sell something yeah but overriding that you've got to manage all that whether it's managing the sales managing the agronomy managing everything but it's the business management that is probably the uh, is, is the key thing and it would be the same if you were making sneakers or black puddings or whatever it's managing all of those processes and understanding every we see it a lot in things like chickens yeah chickens and eggs and and pork is a good example as well there's a lot more minute um, analysis of all the individual components of that business you know labor staff time Mm. uh, movements to try and get it as efficient as possible because in those intensive industries, it is all about efficiency. Whereas I, I don't wonder if in broader agriculture, we've got some big efficiency gains, but we're maybe not as minute on our detail. Yeah, I, I guess the really successful farmers are quite good at that attention to detail as well as being efficient. Because ultimately the number one driver is productivity. It's not price, by the way. Um, uh- we're going to block that one out and remember to uh, <laughs> to speak to Matt and Andrew about price. <laughs> it's, it's a function. It's a function, though. Production, yield, times price, minus cost. Yeah, that, that's right. It's part so, of the trifecta. So price is important, but it's not without, the without the, without, the, without the production, then you've got no price. Andrew. Exactly. Yield yeah. is king. Yield is always king. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, so, but it's yield... Per well, it's dollars per millimeter in dryland agriculture. You know, it's dollars per millimeter per hectare hmm. is is the key, which means, and and in terms of you know, or flip it the other way, it's dollars per ton made minus dollars per ton of costs, and and we don't often think farmers could get better at thinking about that equation and then they would stress less about price and concentrate mm. more on the easiest way to get your cost of production down is grow more. Yeah. And but don't grow too much. <laughs> because then we'll have an oversupply. We'll never have an oversupply in Australia. There you go. Andrew, Andrew, Andrew's about to give you a wind-up, but um, yep. you, neglected, you neglected to um, to let me have my rant. Oh, here we go. (laughs) It was actually more because some of the things you've been saying, Kate, has had me thinking while you were gone. It's something I've I've thought about often uh, when I when I kind of consider, particularly when we talk about climate and farming as as two kind of you know topics. And and coming into ag later in my career, it was always something that confounds me and continues to confound me. And I know there are some farmers that are quite switched on when it comes to environmental matters uh but 
but for the most part, I think there's still this disconnect or this um, sense of, um, I don't know, whether it's some um, lack of trust or what it is. But if you look at those environmental type peoples, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of clashing of yeah. ideas and heads, right? And I've always been surprised for, for a business and, an, and, an, and say an industry that's such, and we talked about just there a bit about productivity being so important. And I think part of the reason why with the intensive farming, you know, you've got those minute, minute details you focus in on is because you're probably less subject to weather type conditions Absolutely. and variability of weather, right? Whereas in the broad acre, you can't get away from the weather and the frost and the hail and the rain and the drought and whatever it is, right? So that's probably one aspect that makes it more difficult. But then also, to my mind, means that you probably should be a lot more in tune with environmental factors. And I, I'm just, I don't understand sometimes why it's more broad, widespread within farming that of all the industries that should be really, you know, on top of that and in tune with it and kind of and kind of being almost the most proactive environmentally, shouldn't it be the farming community that is that? I'll, I'll, not, I'll... not the activists, you know, shouldn't the farmers be the ones that are, well, they're at the coalface, they're, the, they're dealing with it day to day, these changes to the environment. Why isn't, why isn't it as a, as a well, I, you know, kind I'll, of... I'll look, at, look at it differently. I, I don't like to jump in, Matt. You know, you know me, I like to stay back. Hmm. But our farm is not doing quite a lot. They are. Like, That's what I was going to say. There's a they... lot of – Matt, I know you're – I know I've, I've, I've tried to teach you everything I know here, yeah, but I haven't taught you everything I know. Um, That's a lot. And that's a lot. In a short time you've been involved in Australian agriculture. Thank you. But the, uh, the reality is, yeah, there's a lot of things that farmers do that are not for environmental reasons but have an environmental benefit. And I think it's lazy – no offence, Matt – to say that farmers don't care about the environment, but I didn't all... say that. I didn't say that. I'm 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 saying that. You I know, think you did. That, well, no, no. I'm saying that they're you not, said they don't care not... about the environment. No, I didn't say that. I said that the, the perception is the perception is that they're well, not. Well, you know what perceptions right? are. Well, that's why I'm asking exactly. the question. Why? But, but, why but why is, is the why is the perception there that see that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at that there's all these you can't you can't it, make you can't you can't legislate for people's so, perceptions. Uh, you know, you you've got to listen. Moderate. You've got to listen. No, because Andrew sometimes doesn't listen to everything I say and then just goes off on what he wants to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. So what I, the point I'm making is that there's a whole lot of people out there that call themselves environmentalists, right, that, that, are, that capture the media's attention, whereas the ones that are actually doing the work, right, and that know and that, you know, it, it, so they should be there pushing well, themselves. Well, you, as, you're, as the, you're, as, you're talking, as about, the, you're talking about perception, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Would you like some evidence? But a lot of people, perce- <laughs> a lot of per- people perceive that I'm Scottish, hey, Irish, mm. sorry, yeah, yeah, which is wrong. Mm. You can't help people's perception other than through PR. So maybe the industry just has to show how good we are at environment. No tell, no tell is one of the best exactly. environmental exactly. things on the planet. So something I prepared a little bit earlier, or actually didn't prepare, but just happened to have in front of me, social benchmarking for natural resource management, 2019, North Central Victoria. So this is a report funded by the Soil CRC, Southern Cross Uni and Charles Sturt Uni. And there's uh, basically what they did was asked about attitudes. And and, uh, if I can quickly find the table I'm looking for, values that guide your life. Uh, Protecting the environment and preserving nature 
81% thought that was important. So there you, you go. go, Matt. You're wrong. Hey, but, that, but this is the point. I'm Take, apologize to all of our no. listeners, please. You, you, you didn't listen to what – you have to re-listen back what I was saying when I was trying Apo- to explain. Just apologize. Right? No, because – However, in, in, in Matt's defense, the non-farmers' answer to that question was 89%. The full-time farmers' um, answer to that question was 75% of the population. So, so you're both right. Well, there we go. Kate Burke, diplomat extraordinaire. <laughs> well, anyway, I think it's important that uh, we probably close this one up before Matt and I resort to fist fights. <laughs> uh, but it's been a great conversation. We've, I think we're on for like an hour and 15 now. I really enjoyed it. And I, I genuinely, it would be really good to actually have you on again to pick your brains on a few other topics. I'd love um, to. And uh, yeah, definitely. We, we've always said that the most important thing isn't yield, it's profit. And yeah. that is what we should be. We should never be in the pub talking about how I hate seeing yield monitors. I don't give a monkeys about yield monitors. It's about how much revenue you've got in the pocket. Yeah, so. that's that's why I want the revenue discovery text. You know? Maybe that's what you're having to John Deere. It's just like instead of a yield monitor, it's just a revenue monitor. As you go through the paddock. Well, what I did helmet. last year, I made a table. I made a, a revenue table so that they could do yield and price and just there keep that dollar in there. It's not about price, though, Kate, as somebody, famous, as somebody told me recently. Price isn't oh, important. Price is important, but yield is king. Yep. Cost-effective production is exactly. king. Right on. On that note, thank you, guys. I love that. It's fun. Thanks very much. See you when you got nothing on. Ciao for now.